So the background for this class might sound like a, a bit of a, a different title, is uh, I was taking a look at the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I saw this phrase that came up at the end of Matthew chapter 6. And as I was looking at this phrase, I saw that it came up three other times in Matthew's account of the gospel. And it was, uh, it was something that seemed to be primarily unique to Matthew's account of the gospel. And each time that Jesus said this phrase, he was speaking to his disciples. And there seemed to be a bit of a different reason each time for why he was saying it. That yes, there was an opportunity with their faith, but there was a different motivator that brought about Jesus communicating this to his disciples. And so I started wondering, is there a storyline here, a deeper storyline of what Jesus was trying to get his disciples to develop? And in each of those four occasions, there was an element at play that I think supported this storyline of the increasing of their faith that was necessary. And I'm still in the process of working through some of it myself, so it's a bit of a journey of discovery. And what I'd like to do is share with you some points so far along that journey of discovery. And hopefully you'll be able to come to some of your own observations as well that I'd be interested in hearing just in regards to what does this mean for us? Because I think that faith is something that we all struggle with, especially once we get into daily life and we try to apply it. Conceptually, it seems like it makes a lot of sense. And then when we start to face difficulties, we can find ourselves faltering a bit. And so the goal of today's class is to really take a look at what are some of those things that we can learn from the Lord Jesus Christ here. It's an interesting thing to, uh, to think about, just the title itself, O Ye of Little Faith. Because sometimes we think of faith as a binary thing, that either we have faith or we don't have faith. But what if we were to look at faith as something that's on a sliding scale? How strong or differently put, how big is your faith? Is my faith small or is my faith large? O ye of little faith is actually a single Greek word, oligopistos which is actually a composite of two smaller words. So there's pistos, which is probably something that you may be familiar with, which is the word that's used for faith. And then there's oligo. But this word oligo actually refers to small. So what Jesus is literally saying is small faiths, that when he's talking to his disciples, he's calling them small faiths. And he doesn't say, well, you don't have faith. In this case, he's saying that their faith is small. And perhaps a, a well-known verse comes to mind at this point of Luke chapter 17 and verse 5, when the disciples actually ask Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. The disciples were being told by Jesus that they needed to be willing to forgive other people. In other words, they needed to have limitless forgiveness. And it's at that point that they asked Jesus, Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus replies to them that they needed to have faith like the grain of a mustard seed. And so when we hear about a mustard seed, we think, well, that's a pretty small seed. So is the focus on the size of the seed itself, that the actual size is small, or is the focus on the relative size of the seed compared to the actual result or output of the faith? And I believe when you take a look at the references in Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, that Jesus is speaking about the relativity of it that the seed itself is small, but the output is quite large. So large, in fact, that not only does it produce a plant, but that plant 
can actually produce shelter for the birds of the air, for the other creatures that are around it. And so despite the humble beginnings of our faith, if we allow that faith to grow and for God to develop his faith or that faith within us, then it can actually not only help us in our walk, but it can provide shelter, it can provide help for our brothers and sisters around us. And that truly is the hope for tonight's study and consideration, is to think about how we can increase in our faith by overcoming some of the things that would seek to destroy it. So that's the first concept for consideration, that faith isn't an item that we either have or don't have in the life of a believer, but it's something that can shrink, it's something that can grow. In short, it's something that has to be cultivated. And second is that as we increase our faith, it brings with it the ability to actually strengthen others. So at the outset, I mentioned that there's four different occurrences of where this word comes up that's translated, oh, ye of little faith. And here's where they are in Matthew's account of the gospel. So the first one is in the Sermon on the Mount. Each one is speaking about a different aspect. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and verse 30, Jesus links anxiety to this phrase as to being the reason for why he's saying, oh, ye of little faith. The next occurrence that we'll take a look at is the calming of the sea in Matthew 8 and verse 26, where Jesus links fear of the over, overpowering trials of life. And he uses this phrase to his disciples in that particular case. Matthew 14 and verse 31 is the third occurrence. And in that case, Peter is exhibiting doubt that he can overcome the trial that he's facing. And so Jesus speaks in regards to his doubt, O ye of little faith. And in Matthew 16 and verse 8 is the forgetting of past deliverance that God has provided and not applying the knowledge and understanding of past deliverance to a current situation to be faithful in that particular case. And what I'd suggest is that the mechanism that's used here is one of a slow constricting process. It's not a, a sudden thing of where our faith is gone, but that these things build over time anxieties, worries that we have, ultimately, if not dealt with, lead to fears. Those fears result in doubt as to whether or not we can do what God has asked us to do or whether or not God can affect his purpose in us. And that doubt then leads to us forgetting the times when God has exhibited wonders in our lives and when we have seen God at work. And the result is that we end up not being faithful in that particular circumstance. And so in each of these cases, I believe that Jesus walks through those things with his disciples and tries to help them grow in addressing these things. And I don't want us to think that it's, hey, today I've addressed these things in my life and uh, I no longer struggle with anxiety. I no longer struggle with fear or doubt or forgetting. These are things that are going to be a perpetual struggle for us. But it's a matter of doing that weeding in the garden of life so that ultimately we can produce the fruit that God desires. Because that's really what the parable of the sower is talking about, are these weeds that come up. And anyone who has a garden knows that weeding is not a one-time event. It's a continual process. And I think what we'll find is that continually in our lives, we need to keep working at these things so that we can develop the faith that God desires us to have. It's interesting to think about the parable of the sower because in Mark chapter 4 and verse 19, Jesus speaks about these weeds that come up. And he says that these weeds represent, in Mark 4 and verse 19, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in 
choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That word for the cares of this world is actually the word that's used for anxiety. And so that really brings us to this first example that Jesus speaks of when he says, oh, ye of little faith. Let's just turn over there for a moment to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30. Matthew 6 and verse 30 is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus is talking to his disciples about what they're going to pursue in life and being single-minded of either pursuing treasures in heaven or treasures on the earth. And Jesus talks in verse 25 to them and says these well-known words, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat and the body than raiment? And he talks about this God, Mammon, the God of stuff. And the biggest thing that he speaks of when he talks about thought is this aspect of anxiety. He's not saying don't think about what you're going to eat. Don't think about what you're going to be clothed with. He's saying don't have anxious thought. Because when you look at that Greek word, it actually refers to anxious care. And it's a word that recurs multiple times in this section here at the end of Matthew chapter 6. And it's used in regards to the daily provisions of life, food, drink, clothing. It appears in verse 25. And it also appears in verse 28 as thought. I colored him in because I thought it was helpful to see it come off the page. He uses it to not only refer to the daily provisions of life, but the anxious care, the anxious thought that we can feel about the future uncertainty of life, planning and stability. In verses 26, 31, and 34, we see it come up there. And he talks about sowing and gathering into barns, planning for the future, something that's uncertain. And he also talks about it in verse 27 to refer to anxiety concerning longevity of life and lifespan of adding one cubit to our stature or one moment to the span of our life. And he talks about how mammon is really the master of us if we allow ourselves to serve him. And this mammon is the God of stuff, not necessarily the stuff that we accumulate, but the stuff of this life. And Mammon's scourge is that of anxious care, these three buckets of future uncertainty that we can fall into. And what Jesus is telling us is that if we're not careful, what actually ends up happening is instead of serving God, we end up serving our anxious cares. We become concerned about what the future holds. And we think about, well, I, I need to have food to eat tomorrow. I need to be healthy, a place to live. And the Lord tells us, Give us this day our daily bread is what we should be praying for. But having tomorrow taken care of isn't really enough. We want to make sure that we never have to worry about the future. And so given the uncertainty of the future, we plan and we accumulate and we put these processes in place to make sure that we've got mitigation strategies for any future uncertainty that comes along. And we do whatever it takes to quell the anxious care that we have in order so that we can be satisfied. And it's not though we're pursuing greatness in this life. We're just trying to stop being anxious. Jesus says, be careful when you do that, because you might actually end up serving your anxiety as opposed to truly serving God. None of these things are really outlandish. I mean, daily provisions of life, health and mortality, bad life events that come along. So 
why is it that these things happen to us? And how do we fall into this trap? Well, he says the reasons for why we serve mammon are a lack of faith. He says in Matthew 6 and verse 30, Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? A lack of thankful prayer is what Paul speaks about in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. The need for us to approach God with all things in prayer and to make sure that we're not careful or anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And finally, this last piece was a bit tough for me to think about because I never really linked my anxious care and the things that I struggle with to pride. But it's interesting what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, where he actually says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care or anxious thought, same Greek, casting your anxious thought upon him, for he cares for you. And I thought, well, how could this be linked to pride? I mean, here I am struggling because I have anxiety about something. How is that linked to pride? And what Peter's telling us through the Spirit is that fundamentally it's a belief that we have to do it ourselves, that even though God has told us to put our trust in him, that somehow internally I'm still thinking that unless I figure it all out, it's not going to happen. And so what is the antidote then to these things? Well, it would be nice if it was as simple as, hey, here's one thing that I can do and everything's better. But the reality is it's a perpetual process. And what Jesus tells us is that if we believe in our Father, that he is our Father, that he cares for us, and we approach life one day at a time, that this goes a long way in being able to deal with the evils of the day. That's what he says at the end of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought or have anxiety for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And personally, I've found over the last year that it's very difficult for me not to get too far ahead of myself. To think, well, what's the future hold? How much longer is this going to last? And never have I appreciated the wisdom of these words as I have over the past year of it's one day at a time. And even if you want to plan further in advance, the reality is it becomes very difficult to do that because there's so much uncertainty. So approaching it one day at a time and really turning to God and trying to do the best that we can with what we have, where we are, is really what Jesus is counseling us to do in terms of overcoming anxious care. Taking everything to God in prayer is another aspect that comes out. And that's a continual theme here when Jesus is saying, O ye of little faith, is the need for us to offer meaningful prayer consistently and to believe that when we take that burden to God, that we can leave it with God and that he will hold true and be faithful to what he has promised us. It's difficult to do. It's a continual battle. It's a daily affair but we have to overcome mammon through God's prayer or care and by thankful prayer. And that's really what Jesus is saying here in this initial session is here's how you can deal with anxious care. 
And here's one of the big reasons for why faith can diminish over time is because the anxious cares of life slowly constrict us and we worry and worry and our faith ends up being pushed to the side. And I know it's very difficult. I personally struggle with not becoming anxious about things. And I found the words here of Jesus to be incredibly uh, helpful as I thought about this. Jesus tells us in verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you in verse 33. And we say that, we know it as a memory verse, but do we really believe it? And do we live it? And that's the question that I had to ask myself, is based on how much I'm worried or concerned about things, is that evidence that I truly believe that if I'm seeking first the kingdom and God's righteousness, that he's going to take care of the rest of the things that I'm facing. Doesn't mean that everything is going to work out perfectly to where I don't have any trials or any difficulties, but that God will see me through those things. In fact, we know that trials and difficulties are part of the refining process. Those, those are actually necessary to our character development. But it does mean that in the process of time, God will see us through it and ensure that we develop the right character through those trials. And so focusing on the day at hand, not only getting through the day, but getting from the day, learning from the day of what it is that we can develop is really what Christ is speaking about here. So as we continue on to the next aspect of, oh, ye of little faith, Jesus is moving forward a, a few months in time to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 26. If we just turn over to Matthew 8 and verse 26, I'll just read this verse. Because what this is talking about is it's talking about a storm in the sea. Matthew 8 and verse 26, he says to them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The background of this particular event is that Jesus had just been through a full day of activity. And now this day appeared to be coming to an end because we're told in verse 18 that Jesus uh, ended up finishing and continuing on. Actually, it's not verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. Actually, it is. I'm sorry. I was getting confused with the parallel account. Jesus saw the great multitudes about him. He gave commandment to depart to the other side. And so the day is beginning to come to an end. And the parallel account in Mark chapter 4 reveals that this is actually the case, that he's now coming to the end of the day. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35, the same day when the even was come, he saith, let us pass over to the other side. So Jesus is trying to get away from the multitudes. And as they begin traveling, they end up facing a, a pretty significant storm. And in verse 23, Jesus enters into the ship and we begin the journey. And so it's important to mention here in Matthew 8 and verse 23 that Jesus was in the vessel. And that may seem like an obvious point, but it's important for us to remember exhortationally that when we're facing challenges in life, that Christ is in the vessel with us. We can't forget that during the duration of the journey. But as they're in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, a storm arises, and it's described in a few different ways. Three accounts of the gospel, and I have them in the upper right hand side of the slide. In Matthew, what we read is that this was a great tempest, and the Greek is actually megas seismos. 
And seismos and the other 13 times where it's used in the New Testament is referring to an earthquake. In fact, that's actually how it's translated, that there's seismic activity. And so it gives you an order of magnitude as to what was occurring with the disciples on the sea, that the earth was moving and creating these waves underneath them. It wasn't just like any other storm. This was a massive storm that involved seismic activity. And when you take a look scripturally at what this represents, it represents the orders of mankind being disrupted. And I put a few references there in parentheses to help show what earthquakes really mean, because it's going to become relevant as we think about the application for our lives. So they're facing earthquakes. We're also told it was a great storm of wind in Mark and Luke's account of the Gospels. I'm not going to try to read that in Greek. I'll leave that to uh, some of the Greek scholars on the line. But anemos is wind. And that refers to the ever-changing forces of influence in our lives, being moved with every wind of doctrine or being changed around with these circumstantial forces that push us in varying directions. They're not constant. They're ever-changing. And it leads to a feeling of chaos, of where we're constantly being driven in different directions. But when the wind is no longer blowing, there's calm, which is what we find here in Matthew's account of the gospel, when the Lord calms the storm. In addition to the earthquake and the storm of wind, there's also the waves that Matthew and Mark speak about. And when you look at the significance of waves in scripture, or the waters as they thrash about, it refers to the impulsive, unrestrained force of humanity around us. And it's an ever-present force that is continually crashing up against the hull of the ecclesia. And when you think about these three elements, the earthquake, the wind, and the waves, it's the waves, the constant impact of humanism, of the impulsive, unrestrained force of humanity that eventually crashes over the side of the boat and begins to fill it with water. The boat actually becomes covered with the waves in Matthew's account of the gospel. And that actually means to be fully covered. And when you think about this aspect of being fully covered, some of the other usages that come up are in Luke chapter 8 and verse 16, which says, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed. So it's completely covered. The waves were completely covering the boat to where you couldn't even really see it anymore. And it was becoming weighed down with all of the aspects of the storm particularly the water and the waves. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. So it can no longer be seen. The light of the gospel is no longer emanating forth. In other words, these waves have the impact of covering the boat so that it's no longer visible to others. And when you think about us and the intense trials that our ecclesias have been facing over the last year, We see the chaos all around us in the sea of nations. We feel the waves and the tumult crashing up against the whole of our ecclesias. And our ecclesias may have begun to take on some water. At times, we can feel like we're sinking under the weight of the overflowing chaos in our ecclesias or even in our personal lives and all the uncertainty that we face. And when this occurs, it's very easy to focus inward, to center our focus on survival. The danger with this inward focus is that it can lead to the boat being covered by the waves. 
that our light is no longer visible to those around us. Our gospel is hidden. Our ecclesial preaching efforts dwindle as our ecclesia just grapples with the reality of mere survival. Our seminars stop, our lectures take a pause, our preaching stops, there's no cars in the parking lot, the waves have covered us. And it's not a, a single event that results in this, but an ongoing surge of wave after wave after wave. And we wonder, well, what causes this? Well, we see in verse 25, what it is that causes this. The disciples come to Jesus with a fear of survival. When survival is at stake, all the other elements of life become superfluous. Those things don't really matter anymore because if I don't survive this moment, all the other stuff, it doesn't really matter anyway. All that matters is survival. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, save us. We perish. Mark's of the account of the gospel in Mark 4 and verse 38 says, Master, don't you care that we're about to die? Well, at this cry in verse 26, Jesus arises. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. That's how tired Jesus was from the events of the day. They wake him up and Jesus rises up with a, an absolute calm that's akin to the calm at the eye of the storm. He rebukes the storm. And he says to his disciples, why are ye so fearful, O ye of little faith? And with that, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and he brought about a calm. And with that simple statement, what Jesus is doing is he's linking their fear to a lack of faith. Fear and faith simply can't coexist. Fear had actually choked out their faith in that particular circumstance. And you think about us and the things that we struggle with, the instability, the external influences, humanism, they all beat against the whole of our ecclesia, that these threaten to extinguish and to sink our faith due to fear. All three accounts of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that cover this event, speak about the fear of the disciples. This is the point that Jesus is addressing here. And no matter what circumstance in life we're facing, we have to remember that Christ is in the vessel with us, that he's walking in the midst of the ecclesias. And once again, it's easy to say, hey, don't be afraid. But what does that look like for us in daily life? Well, no matter how challenging those circumstances, we need to continue to trust in God and in the power of his son to deliver us. Take a look at what it is that's described for the disciples here. Jesus says in Mark 4 and verse 40, why are ye so fearful? This word is actually delos, which means timid or cowardly. Thayer says that this word was used of Christians who denounced their faith during persecution. So this wasn't just somebody who was afraid. This is somebody who was actually walking away from their faith. They were giving up on Jesus' ability to save them in a particular case. This is how Jesus characterized their response to the storm. This is the word that he used to describe it. Think about Christians in the first century who faced trial, who were persecuted or tortured, and eventually recanted their beliefs in the face of death. This is the word that Jesus is using to describe this. And it wasn't just afraid that they were going to die. They were actually 
abandoning their faith for this moment in the midst of the storm. And after the storm, when everything's calm in Mark 4 and verse 41, it tells us that they feared exceedingly. Phobio, phobo, megas. They were very, very scared because now they realize that by walking away from their faith in the midst of the storm, that they really weren't demonstrating the discipleship that their Lord wanted them to demonstrate. Who was their master? Who was this man? Because only God had the power to control the wind and the waves. We may experience this in our lives, where we face pretty significant ongoing trials. And we can begin to lose hope. We can begin to walk away from our faith because deliverance doesn't come and the trial continues on. But what we need to remember is that no matter what the appearance, Christ is in the vessel with us. To try to be conscious of our Heavenly Father. To remember that his son is walking in the midst of the ecclesias. And once again, this aspect of prayer comes up. The disciples here cry out for help. We can't underestimate the power of consistent prayer, of calling out to God through his son for help in the midst of our challenges. The disciples, even though they were two years into the ministry here, they were still being converted. And the reality is for us that conversion, that transformation takes a lifetime. And we may always struggle with fear or concerns of how we're going to be able to overcome but Jesus counsels us to have faith that even when we're feeling overwhelmed, to remember that God can and will accomplish what we ourselves cannot. Faith has to overcome our fear. And through faith, we can overcome the storms of life. This then brings us to the third thing that Jesus connects when he talks about, O ye of little faith, which is doubt and how it is that we can overcome doubt. The third Passover had now come. This is the background to this particular circumstance that comes up. And Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000 in Bethsaida. Originally, Jesus and the disciples had tried to escape the multitude so that they could share time together. And Jesus actually um, wants to spend time alone. John has just been put to death, what we find in terms of current events that were taking place. And Jesus wanted nothing more than to spend time with his disciples. He had just sent them away for a period of time to do a preaching campaign. And now it was a matter of hearing what it is that they had experienced. But the multitudes followed Jesus on shore while they went across in the boat and got to the place where the disciples were going to go before they could even arrive. So Jesus taught them all day long. And then at the end of the day, the disciples said, look, we're done. Uh, the day is far spent. You need to send them away. Um, we're finished. And Jesus says, well, not so. Um, we're going to feed them. It's your job. And so the disciples, they're not up for this. They said, this isn't really possible. So Jesus says, well, what do you have? Five loaves and two fish. And so they go from wanting to send the or the multitude away to now that they become the serving committee, they're on for the food. They serve everybody until they're full. And then not, not only do they feed everybody, but then they actually have to clean everything up as well. And when it's all said and done, Jesus takes them, sends them into a boat, and ships them offshore while he goes up into a mountain 
to pray to his heavenly father. This was what was going on at this particular circumstance. It was a very, very busy period of time. We're told over in this account that occurs in Matthew chapter 14, that this was a, another storm that they were facing. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 22 is where Jesus constrains his disciples to go into the boat and he sends them off. We're told, though, that they weren't making much progress as they were trying to row across. And we're told in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 14 that it's the fourth watch of the night. That is past 3 a.m. After a long day of service, it's past 3 a.m. and they're still rowing without progress. And this is the incident of where they saw Jesus and they thought that this must be a spirit. And so they cry out in fear and Jesus says, don't be afraid. And Peter says, well, if it is you, then tell me to come out to you on the water. And so Jesus says, yeah, come out to me on the water. It is I. And in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 28, that's where Peter made the appeal. And you wonder, well, why would Peter make this request? Peter wants to be with the Lord more than anything else in the world. And at a time when the disciples, the rest of them, are scared out of their minds, grasping onto the side of the boat while it's rocking up and down in the waves of the, the Sea of Galilee, Peter's climbing over the side of the boat to walk to his Lord. So just imagine with this simple word by the Lord of come, Jesus and Peter are now walking on the water. We're told in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 24 what the situation was like. We're told that the ship was tossed with the waves. That word tossed actually means tortured. And that's what Peter's climbing out into. It's easy for us to be critical of Peter in this situation of why did he get out of the boat and leave others? What about the fact that he lost focus and began to sink? But the fact of the matter here is that Peter actually walked on the water. Jesus doesn't criticize Peter for his decision to walk on the water. But I think there's some lessons that come out that eventually result in the situation transpiring. Because what happens when we take a look at Matthew chapter 14 is that even though Peter initially is walking on the water, something begins to occur rather quickly. We read in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 30, but when he, that's Peter, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. He says to Peter, O, the, o ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And so Jesus is talking here about doubt based on the fear that Peter had. And you see how this occurs in our own lives. If we're, we're afraid of something, afraid of a circumstance, afraid of the potential outcome, and then we begin to doubt. This negative self-talk begins to occur. Of, I can't do it. I'm going to fail. Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says it in a different context. It says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. If we constantly doubt and we project failure on ourselves, 
that it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy, that we will sink and drown amidst the challenges of life, versus the positive talk of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this doesn't mean that we're not going to fail at times. That's not what I'm saying, because all of us fail at times. But what it does mean is that when we fail, we fail forward, and that it becomes part of our growth process, as opposed to something of where we just slip into despair, never to rise again. Because when we find ourselves sinking, we can see what Peter does here of crying out to the Lord and the Lord grasps his hand and pulls him up. Peter walks not one time here, but two times on water. One time as he goes to the Lord and a second time as the Lord walks with him back to the boat. So where we left off with Peter then is when his eyes were on the Lord, he was able to navigate successfully. And the application for us is when we think about the challenges of life, if we become fixated on the trial itself and how hard it is, we're going to find that we begin to sink. And that word for begin to sink actually means drowning. So Peter went from walking on the water to being in a position of where he was drowning, up to his neck, struggling to gasp for air. And the principle for us is that we need to continue to look to Christ, as difficult as it is to not fixate on right what's right before our faces, we need to continue to lift our eyes to see what those things are working toward. The second aspect is that of prayer. So once again, we see this continuing to come up, emphasizing to us that prayer is super powerful and extremely necessary if we're going to overcome the challenges that would seek to constrict and kill our faith. The Lord's response was immediate when Peter cried out, Immediately, Jesus caught him in verse 31. And the principle for us is that the Lord is ready to help, but we have to recognize our need and pray for help. That doesn't mean that in every circumstance that we face, that a hand will suddenly appear to pull us out of the circumstance that we're facing. But what it does mean is that when we approach God in prayer, that we will get that we do not come at the time where we think we need it or where we want it, but we know God is our loving Heavenly Father will continue to help us. And finally, this aspect of fellowship, which I think we can all appreciate to a very high order of magnitude, given everything that's happened over the last year, of the need for our brothers and sisters. Jesus takes Peter back to his brethren in verse 32, when they were coming to the ship. And the principle here for us is that if we're going to truly overcome our doubt, then we need our brothers and sisters to help us. It's not something that we can do alone. We have to be in the vessel, in the ecclesia, with our brothers and sisters, rowing, working together on the pathway to the kingdom. So faith, prayer, and fellowship are those keys for us as we're trying to overcome doubt. And finally, this last aspect is overcoming forgetfulness. Do ye not understand, neither remember? So what actually ends up occurring in this particular instance is Jesus and his disciples are now continuing forward on their journey. It's a, a couple months' time, and we're over in uh, Matthew chapter 16 is where we come forward in time. And Jesus is telling his disciples in Matthew 16 and verse 6, to take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Jesus is now up in the coast of Magdala. He's confronted the religious leaders, and they've challenged him to produce a sign, which was Matthew 16 and verse 1. Jesus had already given them a ton of signs up to this point in the ministry, two and a half years worth of signs, in fact. But they seem to be blind to seeing them. And so Jesus' response to them in verse 4 is essentially akin to saying, you're not going to get any more signs. When he says, can't you discern the signs of the times? It means that nothing else is coming your way. You're not getting any other sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, which would be his death and his resurrection. You can imagine that this would have been a fairly heated exchange between Jesus and the religious rulers. And Jesus would have been very frustrated with how this ended. And you can imagine that this would have ended very abruptly. And Jesus would have gone quickly into the boat with his disciples to set off toward the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was now going to take his disciples up to the northernmost part of the nation of Israel. He's going to take them to Caesarea Philippi to spend some time with his disciples alone. In verse 5, Jesus and the disciples reached the other side and mealtime was approaching. The disciples would have begun to ask each other, you know, have you brought any food or what do the preparations look like here? And in their haste to exit the conversation with the Sadducees and Pharisees, it's very likely that what had occurred is they had simply forgotten to gather provisions. In these types of scenarios, when we see the disciples kind of caucusing together and talking, it's not uncommon for the disciples to converse amongst themselves in what they believe to be just out of earshot of the Lord. But likely seeing the commotion of the twelve, Jesus tells them to take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By this point in the ministry, the disciples were very used to Jesus speaking in parables. So immediately their mind went to this must be some type of parable that Jesus is speaking about. And so they started thinking, well, what is it that he's referring to? And in verse 7, their minds immediately made the connection that it must be because we didn't bring any food. Jesus is irritated with us because we didn't bring food. But in verse 8, Jesus tells them, that they couldn't be further off from what he's truly trying to communicate. Jesus wasn't talking about food at all. This wasn't a subtle jab that they had forgotten to bring food and his stomach hurt, and so he's upset with them for not bringing food. Jesus was warning them about the leaven that could fill their lives. Jesus, I believe, was still working through mentally this last encounter that he had just had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he wanted to make sure that this lesson wasn't lost on his disciples. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, Jesus connects what the leaven of the Pharisees actually was. He says the leaven of the Pharisees was their doctrine, their teaching, their hypocrisy. The way that they taught led to a life of hypocrisy. And so Jesus warns them, make sure that you beware of that, that you don't say one thing and live your life in a different way. And in Matthew 16 and verse 12, the leaven of the Sadducees was their teaching, which was one of self-satisfaction. It's at this point that Jesus says, O ye of little faith, in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 6, Why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not understand? Neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up. Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up. How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it to you concerning bread? not concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven and the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. 
Then understood they how he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So Jesus is connecting here their lack of faith or their struggle with faith to the fact that they didn't remember what it was that had just taken place in time. Mark gives us a little bit more detail concerning this particular account where he says, Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye yet your heart hardened? If you don't have it marked already, it's worth marking in Mark chapter 6 and verse 52 next to this phrase of heart hardened. Months later, the disciples were still unwilling to reflect on the feeding of the 5,000. This is months after that period of time. But in Mark chapter 6 and verse 52, the disciples were really upset at what had taken place. They had been very tired out of dealing with the multitudes, but they were forced to serve the multitudes, to gather the food, and to be in a position where they really didn't want to be in. And then they were put into a boat, and they had to row all night long. They got through this situation. They thought that there was really no hope. Jesus had delivered them. And at that point, they simply wanted to move on with their lives. But Jesus tells them in the parallel account over in Mark chapter 8 and verse 18 to what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 16. He says, having eyes see ye not, and having ears hear ye not, and do ye not remember. He wanted them to remember the lesson that they had learned before. In both Matthew and Mark's account of the Gospels, the Lord mentions their lack of understanding and their lack of remembering in connection with this declaration of, O ye of little faith. And what Jesus is getting at here with the disciples is that when we fail to reflect, when we fail to think about life circumstances, especially those that are a bit painful and those that are challenging, then we deprive ourselves of the ability to truly understand. Because the disciples were closed to learning from the feeding of the 5,000, because they had decided, look, I just want to move on. I don't want to think about that anymore. Because they were closed to learning from that painful memory, they didn't really understand the lessons of the day. And if we truly want to understand, then we have to let go of anger. We have to let go of frustration. We know from James chapter 1 that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And what anger and frustration do to us is they harden us to learning. It turns us into the hard ground, the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 to 15. The reality is that we don't often want to think of ourselves as the hard ground, but our anger and our refusal to reflect on painful life circumstances can actually do exactly that. The words that Jesus uses to describe the disciples here of having a hardness of heart links directly back to that bad ground in the parable of the sower that Jesus speaks about there in Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 to 15, of where he says, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. A failure to understand naturally results in a failure to remember. Because how can we remember something that we never really understood in the first place. But what's the danger of not remembering? Well, in this particular case, because the disciples were unable to remember, they were unable to apply past learnings to the current situation that they presently faced. 
we wonder, well, how do I increase my faith? We know from Romans 10 and verse 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that it grows by seeing that God's word actually works when we apply it into our lives. But if we're not taking stock of those things, if we're not remembering those things when they come along, then there's really no building from an applicability side of things. But each situation is viewed as a unique situation, independent of everything that's come before. Time and again, Moses had to tell the people in the book of Deuteronomy, don't forget what you learned in the wilderness. Don't forget what you learned in those really challenging periods of your life. Because if you forget those things, then you simply won't learn the lessons. You won't be able to increase in your faith. And you'll actually end up falling away. So we need to think of the times when God has helped us through these situations that have brought us anxiety that have resulted in fear, that have caused us to doubt, to reflect on those things and to build our faith and to build the faith of our brothers and sisters as they too face many challenges in these last days in which we live. And so in summary, some of the points for us in terms of trying to increase in our faith is the ability to overcome anxiety and the keys there of thankful prayer and committing things to God's care. And really approaching life one day at a time, not getting too far ahead of ourselves, but taking things one day at a time through prayer and committing things to God's care. The second with overcoming fear is to be conscious of God, to know that he's everywhere present around us. Once again, to pray, a recurring theme to consistently pray in our communications to God and to actually believe that God can accomplish what we cannot. The third relates to overcoming doubt, to focus on Christ and not on the trial, not to focus on how hard it is, what we're currently facing, but as Christ was able to overcome the cross, to focus on the joy that is set before us, to continue in our prayer and to draw strength from our brethren, like Peter, to be in the vessel, in the boat with our brothers and sisters, building one another up to overcome the doubts and the fears that we each face. And finally is remembering God, using past deliverance to build our faith in future deliverance, knowing that God will increase our faith if we continue to turn to him, and we do it one day at a time. It's something that we'll never overcome fully on this side of the kingdom. But if we continue working at it, we continue praying about it, we continue asking that God increase our faith and remembering those times where we have seen God working in our lives and encouraging our brothers and sisters to do the same, then God will enable us to overcome and to produce fruit for his glory and honor. Thank you.